shining a light to the nations. Shalom again, everyone. I'm Bill Cloud, and welcome to our program, Returning to Our Roots. We have been discussing Cain, and specifically the mark of Cain. In our previous program, we were discussing the fact that it was Cain and his descendants that introduced certain things into the world that were in opposition to God and to God's people. For instance, it was one of Cain's descendants, Lamech. Again, not to be confused with Lamech, who was the father of Noah, but Lamech is the one, according to the scripture, that first introduced polygamy into the world. And one of his sons, through his second wife, was named Tuval-Cain. And as we were sharing in the previous program, Tuval-Cain is a name that means to proceed forth from Cain, to issue forth from Cain. And so Tuval-Cain, the son of Lamech, bears the name of his predecessor, the focus of what we've been talking about over the last couple of programs. And so Tuval Cain is Cain personified. And that's interesting because Tuval Cain, according to the Bible, first introduced into the world metallurgy. He began to make weapons. So we're going to read Genesis chapter 4, verse 22. It says, And as for Zillah, and again, she is the second wife of Lamech, she also bore Tuval Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. Now, in the last program, we asked the question, what was he making of bronze and iron? And it seems very clear to, through tradition and just looking at some of the concepts in Scripture that he wasn't making farming tools because Cain had been told that the ground would no longer produce for him. And so farming tools would serve no value to Cain and his descendants. And so what was he making? And tradition says that he was making bronze weapons. He was making iron weapons. In fact, one translation of what we just read in Genesis 4.22 says this, To all Cain hammering all kinds of cutting things in brass and iron. Now the writer Josephus says that Tuval Cain had great strength in military affairs. He introduced the art of warfare, as it were, and he taught men how to make iron weapons, how to make armor, and all these instruments of war. And so consequently, one source says that Tuval Cain means son of the lance, L-A-N-C-E. The lance, of course, would be Cain. So it would seem then that Tuval Cain, this son of Lamech, was someone who improved upon things that Cain had first introduced. Um, from the very beginning, we see that the adversary takes something that is good and then he mixes it with something that's not, and that's what he offered to the woman. Well, Cain is the first to manifest the attributes of the adversary, and introduce murder, robbery, lying, all these kinds of things into the world. And so consequently, he is regarded as of the wicked one, according to 1 John 3. Well, it would seem then that Tuval Cain, who is, in a manner of speaking, the fruit of Cain, he is improving upon those very evil and wicked things that Cain first introduced. If the serpent took truth and mingled it with a falsehood to produce a lie, then Cain manifests that into the earth. But Tuval Cain helped that 
other seed to, to spread out and to infect and affect other peoples. There's an interesting theory that the Romans took the name Tuval Cain and they adopted it into their pantheon. They would have dropped the T-U of Tubal and actually changed the B sound, the B, into a V sound, which, by the way, in Hebrew is quite common. There's the letter Beit that gets the B sound, the B, but it's also, in certain words, given the V sound. So, in other words, it's not a stretch to change the B sound into the V sound. So, my point would be this. If the Romans, according to this theory, did adopt the name Tubal Cain into their pantheon, how did they do that? What, how did they use it? So in dropping the T-U and then changing the B sound into a V sound, Tubal Cain became Vulcan or Vulcan. So in the Roman pantheon, there is this god called Vulcan. And again, it's believed that this name may have originated with Tuol Cain. Vulcan, of course, was the Roman god of fire. We get the word volcano from this Roman mythology. But it's also interesting, at least for me, that Vulcan, according to the Romans, was the smith god. In other words, this is the god who forged weapons. The whole concept of the volcano in Roman mythology is that it's emblematic of war and it's a, it's a, a forge. It's the smith god Vulcan forging weapons of iron and brass. So that's kind of interesting and perhaps lends credence to the theory that the Romans adopted the name Tubal-Cain into their pantheon of gods. Now, Vulcan's Greek counterpart was called Hephaestus, and I'm sure that I didn't pronounce that correctly. But anyway, Hephaestus is uh, the Greek counterpart of the Roman god Vulcan. Now, according to Greek mythology, and let me, let me go ahead and interject this right here. I'm not here to be an advocate for Roman and Greek mythology. I'm just of the opinion that some of these myths perhaps have some kind of connection to things that actually happened. So in Greek mythology, the smith god, the forger of weapons, Hephaestus, actually created a woman from clay and called her Pandora. And according to this myth, Pandora had a jar that contained all these wicked and uh, evil spirits, and she opened this clay jar and released all the wickedness and all these evil spirits upon mankind. Here's the only reason I bring that out. Tuval Cain, the son of Lamech, the descendant of Cain, had a, a sister by the name of Nema. And tradition says that the two of them had an incestuous relationship. And it was because of this incestuous relationship, or shall we say mixed relationship, forbidden mixtures, I might add, that that released a lot of confusion and a lot of evil upon the world. In fact, tradition has it that the offspring of this incestuous relationship between Tuvalcain and his sister Nema resulted in the daughters of men that the sons of God mated with and married in Genesis chapter 6. Now let me say, 
That's a theory. That's a, an opinion. I'm not, not going to be dogmatic about that. But it is very interesting. And even if it isn't completely accurate, here's what we glean from these traditions, these thoughts, these theories concerning Tuvalcain and Cain's descendants in the very beginning. They are the ones that released into the world in a physical way the mixing and mingling of good and evil, taking something good and using it for an evil purpose. The adversary is not a creator. He doesn't have the ability to create. Only the God of Israel has that ability. But what the adversary can do and does is to take something that was meant for good and to use it for evil. Interesting. God is the one, our God, is the one who can take things that were intended for evil and turn them around for good. But at any rate, the adversary is the one who mixes things that are false, things that are unclean, things that are corrupt with those things that are clean, holy, set apart. Cain and his descendants are the ones that took what was in the adversary's heart and made them manifest in the earth, turned them into a physical reality. And all for this purpose, to strike at the righteous seed, to make war upon the sons and daughters of God. That's the only reason that Tuval Cain, in my opinion, forged these weapons. Because you remember back, his ancestor Cain hated Abel. And the reason he hated him was because God favored Abel. And he bestowed blessing upon Abel. And that incited Cain to lure him out into a field somewhere and strike him over the head. In fact, Cain took something that God created. Some uh, traditions have it that it was a stone or a rock. And if that's the case, then he took something that God created for good and he turned it into something meant for evil. And he did it because he was jealous. And so there is this animosity, there is this hatred, there is this state of war between these two opposing seeds. There is this enmity that was established. And so the only logical reason, as far as I'm concerned, that Cain and his descendants would forge weapons is to strike against the righteous seed, to strike against God's people. That's what the adversary wishes to do. We shared this with you in the last program, but I want to show you these Hebrew words once again. The first one is the word for bronze, that which is being used to make these weapons. And that term is nechoshet. Nechoshet. Nun chet shintav. Nechoshet. And it comes from the root word nun chet shin. Nun chet shin, or nechash, which... The raw meaning of the word is to be sleek, to shine, but it's also the word for serpent. In other words, what Tuval Cain was doing was forging weapons of the serpent. He was making manifest, he was making physical these things that were in the adversary's heart. So he was forming these weapons to strike against God's people. As I shared with you, this is the first time that the world had saw WMDs, or weapons of mass destruction. Because before that time, the only thing that we know of anyway that had been used for this purpose was a rock or a stone, or maybe a bow and arrow. But 
Cain's descendants perfected the art of warfare. Now, all of this leads me to this point, because you and I are looking at these things that happened in the beginning to understand those things that are going to happen in the end. And so I want to read you a verse here in Isaiah 54 that says this, Behold, I have created the blacksmith who blows the coals in the fire, who brings forth an instrument for his work, and I have created the spoiler to destroy. No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue that rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. So in that verse of Scripture, all the things that Cain and his descendants and really being inspired by the adversary, all that they want to do and have tried to do, the Creator says to His people that these weapons that they're forming against you shall not prosper. Of course, later on in the New Testament, Paul kind of echoes this verse here. But it's really important for us to, to see what the adversary is intending to do, has been trying to do, and will continue to try to do. Again, what happened in the beginning is what's going to happen in the end. But we have the promise that, and I believe it's conditioned on if we are faithful to him, doing what we're supposed to be doing, that these weapons that the adversary forms against us is not going to prosper. So now, if that's what was going on in the beginning, how do we see these things being manifest in the end? Considering the information we have, here's what I believe, that we can, to some degree, observe and pinpoint who the adversary is wanting to work through these days in, uh, in a very general way. We can, we can see what he's trying to do in these days. And here's what we need to be looking for. And this is all based on what we see in the story of Cain and his descendants. First of all, these people that, or people groups, the adversary is going to work through are going to embrace another seed. And by that I mean another word, if you will, another holy book. So they're not going to adhere to the scriptures, not as a whole. They may pick and choose, but they're not going to embrace it as whole. In fact, they will embrace another seed and another holy book. And that holy book is going to be mixed. It's going to be mingled because that's the seed of the adversary. The word of the adversary is a lie. And so every convincing lie is going to contain a measure of truth. So it's going to be mixed. It's going to be mingled. And it's going to display hostility toward God's word. And it's going to, to display hostility toward God's people, in short, Israel. But even though it's doing that, it's going to project the appearance of being good. Because in the beginning, the fruit, the tree that the adversary seduced the woman into eating from was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The adversary always comes posing as an angel of light, not dressed in a red suit carrying a pitchfork. So everything that these people, these people groups, those that the adversary is using in this day and time will project an appearance of being good. But they do that in order to conceal the evil intent. Because really the word they hold on to is at war with God's word and with God's people. 
these people will also have a Babylonian mindset. In other words, they will have a goal of uh, bringing those that want to mix and mingle with them together, but in order to strike at God's people. It will be manifest in a desire to conquer Jerusalem, to wipe Israel off the map, to, so that Israel will cease to exist, to subjugate God's people. And as I've already said, it will be with a mixed theology, a mixed mindset, and it will be a mingled people. In getting a bit more specific, when we look at Cain and the things that he did and the consequences of his actions, remember Cain is the seed of the serpent from the beginning. Not that the serpent and the woman had relations, but that Cain, in rejecting God's word, embraced the word of the adversary. So he's of the wicked one. He's the seed of the serpent. And so here's what we're also going to see in the traits and characteristics of those that the adversary would use to come against God's people. They're going to be murderers. They're not going to value human life. They will be robbers. They'll be polygamists. They'll be liars. Perhaps nomads and vagabonds. Or, on the flip side of that, they will congregate in cities they will be warriors. They will transform things that were intended for good into something that can be used for evil to strike against God's people. And they're going to be cursed because they seek to curse what God has blessed. And as a result, in the end, before all is said and done, they will be marked. Now, this next item might sound a little foolish, but it is interesting to consider they're not going to be noted for their farming skills. They're, they're not going to be those that are well acquainted with the country and, and, and digging in the dirt. Because in the beginning, when Cain murdered his brother, the ground would not produce anything for him. And so it would infer that Cain and his seed were destined to live in desert, barren regions or... They would live in cities. Remember, Cain built a city, and I believe in defiance to the sentence that God had placed upon him. And it might be that they actually dwell in a combination of the two. I mean, part of them might be dwelling in desert regions, and they may also congregate in cities. So when we consider all of this, we have, a, I think, a pretty clear picture to look at and see if those that are uh, displaying these traits and characteristics, maybe those are the people, or maybe those are the people groups that the adversary is trying to use, maybe even manipulating to use, in order to strike against God's people. Now, the first scenario as far as where they would live, that is a barren desert region, is very interesting because one of the biggest regions on earth that qualifies for desert uh, barren regions, uh, one of the regions is the Arabian Peninsula. Of course, there is the Sahara in northern Africa, and there's other deserts throughout the world. But we've got to look at all the different components of this. And so when we look at the Arabian Peninsula, it's a little interesting. Because first of all, the word Arab, as we pronounce it in English, is the Hebrew word Arav. 
And as we've shared here on this program, the word arav, I want to show that word to you, ein, resh, bet, arav, it's the Hebrew word that means mixed or mingled, which is most definitely an attribute of Cain, Cain's descendants, the whole concept of the adversary trying to steal, kill, and destroy. He does it through a mixed or a mingled language, mixed and mingled word, theology, ideology, etc. So Arav, or again, as we would say, Arab, is the Hebrew word for mixed or mingled. Now, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 2, excuse me, in Daniel chapter 2, the word that is descriptive of the last kingdom of man, the one that is the two feet, the ten toes, um, the, the last one that is trying to destroy God's people, it is characterized as being merav. I want to show you that Hebrew word. Mem, ein, resh, bet. Mem, ein, resh, bet. Merav. Now notice that in the word merav is the root word arav or mixed or mingled. And so that's why this last kingdom of man, again, the two feet with the ten toes, iron mingled with clay, four times Daniel describes it as being merav, mixed or mingled. But a thousand years ago, a Jewish commentator by the name of Ibn Ezra said this, and I'm just kind of paraphrasing, that based on the fact that Daniel chose the word merav to describe this last kingdom. Even Ezra looked at that and saw that Merav Mem Ayn also could say from Arabia. Thousand years ago, in other words, even Ezra predicted that this last kingdom of man would be an Islamic kingdom or a heavily influenced kingdom, a kingdom heavily influenced by Islam. And of course, if you look around you today and you see what's going on in the world, it's not really hard to imagine that even Ezra may have been correct. So now what are we getting at here? Again, the word arav in Hebrew is mixed or mingled. And it's actually tied to the idea of evening, twilight. In fact, the Hebrew word for evening is erev, and it's spelled identically to the word for mixed, ayin reshbeh. But Evening, twilight, Erev, if you will, is when light is beginning to mix with darkness, when day is mingling with night. And when, or excuse me, where does this happen? It happens in the West. And so interestingly, the Hebrew word for West, I want to show that to you. Mem, Ain, Resh, Beit, Ma'arav. In other words, it's the Hebrew word for West is identical to the word that is used in Daniel 2 that is descriptive of this last kingdom of man, the West. Here's why I find that interesting. Because out of the Arabian Peninsula, um, we have Islam. Islam originated from and was uh, conceived in the Arabian Peninsula. And it came from there, and then it spread out throughout, throughout the world. And you remember that Cain and his descendants are going to be those that are vagabonds and wanderers, and it implies, anyway, that they're going to live in arid desert regions. Now, let me say this. I'm not suggesting that every Arab, by ethnicity, 
Man, woman, and child is Cain's seed. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that at all. As I've already shared with you, the Bible makes it very clear that it really doesn't matter what your skin color is or what culture you were born into or what language you speak. That if you come to the Messiah Yeshua, that you are born again and you become his people, Israel. It doesn't matter where you come from. If you receive that good seed, the one and only incorruptible seed, then you become his people regarded as Israel. At the same time, you can be born ethnically Israeli, or you can be born into a Christian culture and family, but still be considered Arav, mixed or mingled. But there's no way around this that Arav is a derogatory term in the scripture because to be Arav is to be the opposite of what the Creator is, who is holy, who is set apart. And that's why he tells us that we are not to mix and to mingle with things that he forbid. So when we look at the word West, Ma'arav, that is, uh, gives us the idea of moving away from what's pure and what's holy. It's a derogatory term because the people who built Babylon were journeying from the east, meaning that they were headed toward the west. You can see that in Genesis chapter 11. So all of this is to say that the word Arav is a term that is derogatory. It is the antithesis of what the Creator is and consequently what His people should be. And Arav is the region on the planet, this desert barren region that gave the world Islam, a religion that adopts another holy book that is, in general, very antagonistic to God's word, to God's people, to Israel. In fact, wants to destroy them. And I know that it's politically incorrect to say these things. And again, I don't believe that every person who's Arab is evil. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying that. Ladies and gentlemen, you and I need to discern what's going on here in the end of days. And we do that by going back and looking at what happened in the beginning. Now, we're going to be back, and when we come back, we're going to kind of conclude this teaching on the mark of Cain. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us. We'll be back. Like what you're hearing? Become a Bill Cloud Premium Partner to watch or listen to hundreds of hours of teachings and resources on demand. Go to BillCloud.com slash subscribe to start watching today.